Yes, you have a heat pump, eh? Well, we were sitting with blankets. Okay, let's turn to Revelation, shall we? We're going to continue our series on the seven churches, which I want to do for a long time, and I finally got around to it. I must confess, though, that trying to prepare for this, I found it really hard, but not the reasons why you think. It's because there's too much stuff in here, and I'm a bit of a history buff, not greatly, but I like going into history, and the trouble is you get so bogged down in the history that that you've missed the point, and so a lot of you are probably not history buffs who don't even care about it, but I want to try and build a bit of a background, so I'm going to do, it's going to take two messages to do the first church. Remember last time we looked at the beginning, it's one of the most favorite passages for me, where John was on the island of Patmos, and he had the revelation of Jesus, and he basically fell down as if he was dead, because Jesus came as the glorified Son of Man, with eyes of fire, and he shone brighter than the sun, and it was just overwhelming, and John just fell down as though dead. And then Jesus picks him up. And remember I talked about the fact that John was Jesus' favorite disciple, um, and that he leant on Jesus' breast quite often, and so I could imagine Jesus saying, come on, John, it's okay, it's me, because John didn't recognize who Jesus was because he was in his full glory as the Son of Man. And then he begins to give the whole book of Revelation. And we're going to look at the first church here, it's to the church of Ephesus. So chapter 2 of Revelation. And we're going to do it two parts because it's, there's a lot in it. So bear with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To whom who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And so we're going to do two parts because there's so much in this. And I'm going to do a bit of a background, so bear with me. I hope you like history, but it's to so you can understand what this all the background to the whole thing is, because otherwise we'll miss some of the stuff. It's just a bit of background about John the Apostle. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross? And he turned to his mother and he said, Dear woman, here's your son. And then he turned to John and he said, Here is your mother. In other words, Jesus gave John 
his mother to look after him after he was crucified. And the fascinating about it is that John and Mary ended up living in a Christian community at Ephesus. Um, from what I gather, it was probably about AD 64. So looking about 34 years after Jesus' death. We don't know where they were before then. They probably lived in Jerusalem. But then eventually, John the Apostle moved to Ephesus with Mary. And they lived just outside of Ephesus on a hill overlooking Ephesus. And that's where they remained until they passed away. Um, interesting was that when John was 90 years old, amazing, he was arrested for bowing down and worshipping us, for not bowing down and worshipping a statue of the emperor of Rome. The emperor Domitian was, came into power at that time and he was a, a very, very evil, wicked and person and began to persecute the church. But he ordered all temples to be built in all the towns and cities and there were temples basically where they, he built a statue of himself and so when you walked past the temple, you had to bow down and worship him and burn or bow down to a statue and burn incense. And it was basically imperable cult worship. And the emperor actually declared himself to be Lord and God. And so you can imagine the conflict that came with many of the Christians because they couldn't do that. And so John obviously had walked past the temple because there's one in Ephesus. He refused to bow down. And so they arrested him at 90 years old. Imagine that, 90 years old. He was arrested, sent to Rome to stand before the emperor. And the emperor tried to make him burn incense and worship him. Of course, John said no. And so the emperor took him and said, right, and they put him in a pot of boiling oil. And the amazing thing was that nothing happened. Paul, John, nothing happened to him. They stuck him in this boiling oil, and then they finally pulled him out. Nothing wrong with him, nothing even touched. And the emperor freaked out, was terrified because nothing happened to John. And so the emperor banished him to the island of Patmos. And the island of Patmos was a, a penal colony, Roman penal colony, just off the coast of Greece. It was an island about, probably about the size of Rarotonga, maybe I'm not quite sure, 10 miles long and 7 miles wide. Nothing on it, no buildings hardly, hardly any water, any food. And they would dump all the political prisoners on this island, but you couldn't get off. Many of them died. And John found a cave in the middle of the island, and that's where he lived for 18 months. And that's where he had the revelation here of Jesus, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And the incredible thing is about that cave is still there today. You can go to the island of Patmos, and you can go up, and you can see the cave. There's pictures of it. It's called the Cave of Revelation, funny enough. <laughs> But that's where John was for 80 months, okay? And it was there that he had a, a disciple called Procurius, or Procurius, who's actually one of the seven deacons in, Revelation, in Acts chapter 2. Remember they picked the deacons? Well, that was one of them, Procurius. He was one of the deacons way back then. He was a disciple. He looked after John, and he wrote down what John saw. So as John had this incredible revelation, he was like a scribe, and so he wrote down the book of Revelation while in the cave. And you can sit, you can go to and visit that cave today. It'd be an awesome place to go, I'd imagine. Go and see. And so he was on the island for 18 months because what happened is the emperor was assassinated, and the new emperor gave John a pardon. And so John went back to Ephesus, and by this stage he's in his mid 90s, 
and he died around about 100 years old at Ephesus. And you can go to the ruins of Ephesus today and his grave is still there. There's pictures of it. There's a, there's a grave and that's where John the Apostle was buried. Right? And so John was one of the apostolic leaders there in Ephesus for many years and overseen a number of churches around that area. And so you can actually go there today and see his grave. Apparently what happened was that thousands and thousands of Christians used to come to Ephesus to visit Mary and John. And if you were there, you would have done the same, wouldn't you? If you, were there, if you had a chance, wouldn't you want to go and see, talk to Mary and John? Just begin to imagine what you would ask them. What would you talk about? Imagine talking to Mary and John. You would say, what was Jesus like as a little boy? What did he look like? What, what did he say? What was, what was unique about him? You, I mean, I just think what sort of questions you would, would you ask Mary to think this is the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John? Imagine the questions you would have. And so there was thousands of Christians would come and visit John and Mary when they lived in Ephesus just to talk to them, to ask questions. I mean, I would think, whoa, that would be incredible, wouldn't it, to think that because we're talking about you know, 30 to 50 years after Jesus was crucified. And so it was a busy place. All these people come to see them. And the question is often asked, why the messages to these seven churches specifically? It's probably because these seven churches were the spiritual hubs of that, of those, of that particular area. Today, these churches are all in what you call modern-day Turkey, which is what we call Asia Minor back then. And these were the largest and the biggest cities in that whole area. And so they were huge cities. They were like the central hubs. And so that's where these seven churches were. And there is some historical evidence that suggests that Asia Minor was divided into seven church districts all over that area. And these seven churches were the main centers which oversaw all the churches in that district. And so when John book of Revelation would have been copied probably several times and circulated to all the churches because there was more than just seven churches. There were hundreds of churches that were planted from these seven churches. And so they were just like the center. They were the biggest cities, the biggest commercial centers, business centers. And so that's where those churches were. And from there, they planted many other churches. And so the book of Revelation wasn't just for one church. It would have been handed around. It would have been copied and handed around to all the churches. And what's interesting is the problems that the seven churches faced, Jesus addressed the common problems faced by local churches throughout all the ages, and it's still very, very valid today, because we still face the same issues in many ways. And that's what makes it so powerful, even for us today. And it talks about there, and we looked at last week, about when John saw Jesus he saw a sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth, which represents, of course, the Word of God. The Word of God was coming out of his mouth. But what's interesting is that in the Greek, the word for sharp also describes the sanitizing effect of a medical cleanser intended to attack infection and remove disease. As an anesthetizing wine was given to the patients in those days for the pain before a painful surgical procedure. And so what Jesus was doing is preparing to perform a radical and potentially painful procedure to remove from the churches all compromise with the world and sin spreading among his church. 
that's what the two-edged sword, it's like the word of God coming out of his mouth and it was to begin to cleanse and purify his church. And so the sword was therefore positioned and ready to slice into the body of Christ to cut out every disease. And it sounds pretty harsh and it probably is, okay? Because there's no way to avoid the painful effects of judgment because of his love and his compassion for his church. And if in a sense it's like the sword is to carry the anesthetic of the Holy Spirit to numb the pain of the procedure. Good eh? <laughs> the purpose of divine judgment is not to wound, but to cleanse and to heal the church, restoring it. Otherwise, it would be, be destroyed because the disease that is ravishing it from within. And so that's no different today. The church needs to have the Word of God coming, and the Holy Spirit comes, and he like he, it's like an anesthetic because it gives us the ability to allow him to change and transform us because otherwise the church would just basically not exist anymore because there's a disease in the church and the disease is sin and compromise. And so every generation is basically the same. God has to come and cleanse his church. Remember, Jesus is coming back for what? A pure bride. He's coming back for a perfect and pure bride. And so he loves us enough not to leave us where we're at. And so he comes with this two-edged sword, the word of God, and he begins to cut away those things that are a hindrance to what he wants to achieve. Now the church in Ephesus was known, or the church, or the or Ephesus, the city, was known as the light of Asia, and it was the leading economic city. It was known as the fourth greatest city in the world at that particular time. It was a very wealthy city, and it had the highest standard of living in all of Asia Minor. And it was the home of the largest temple of the cult, Artemis. And the temple was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world back then. So there was a huge temple that worshipped this pagan god, pagan deities, and it was huge. And it was one of the biggest temples anywhere in Asia. And it was known all over the world. And we know from scriptures that Paul arrived there about 52 AD and Paul planted a church. And we know from the book of Acts that this was one of the greatest revivals in the book of Acts happened in Ephesia, or Ephesus, sorry. And we'll see there, well, let's just keep your finger there, but turn to Acts 19. So we're just doing a bit of a background to understand what's going on. Acts 19. If you read that story, the whole chapter is about what Paul did at Ephesus, and it was like a full-on revival, okay? Let's go to verse 10. Um, he was speaking at the, in the synagogues. They kicked him out of there. And so verse 10, this went on for two years. He was preaching the gospel so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Because Ephesus was a major uh, trade, uh, trade route. It was on the harbor. And so had thousands of people coming through. And so everybody heard the word of God. That's a big statement. Isn't it? Who lived in the province of Asia and heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and the illness was cured and the evil spirits left them. And goes on, uh, verse 10, 
Uh, when this became known to the Jews, the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord which Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and opened confessed their evil deeds. A number of practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is actually around about $5 million today. It's a lot of books, isn't it, Bogdan? Imagine $5 million of books just being burnt. Okay, so everybody repented. They had all these occult books and stuff to do with cult worship and all the pagan gods, and they came at a huge big bonfire. So you can imagine, I mean, this was disrupting the whole city, right? And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And then later on, we see there was a huge riot because people were turning to Christ by so many that they were no longer going to the temple of Emmaus or that temple. And so people were losing their, their, uh, their income because they're making all these idols. And so there was a huge riot. Paul gets dragged in. We're going to kill him. And he managed to escape and he moves on. And so we see there was a huge revival that happened in Ephesus. And then after three years, it says that Paul left. And it's interesting because that's the longest time that Paul stayed anywhere. And also you realize that Ephesus was one of the largest centers of the slave trade in the first century. At that time, around about 30-40% of all the population were slaves. And so it was just a common thing. But Ephesus was the center of the slave trade. And that's why if you look in the book of Ephesians... Paul talks a lot about masters and slaves and how to treat them in his letter to the Ephesians because many people who got saved had slaves and so they'd bring their slaves to church and so there was this whole dynamic going on. Also at Ephesus was a huge coliseum that seated 30,000 people. That's where they had the chariot races. That's where the gladiators used to fight. If you've seen the gladiators, you know what it's like. And also there were many Christians who were martyred in that coliseum um, they were put into, they used to put the Christians into the arena. Then they set the wild animals onto them, the lions, tigers, and leopards, and wild dogs. And the crowds would watch as they were torn apart. And so here we have a city where there was lots of persecution, lots of Christians martyred, and they're right in the center of Ephesus. And so Ephesus was the largest church at that time. It was probably a mega church. Um, in our terms, it's probably, it doesn't, we don't know how many, but could have been several thousand because there was a big city and there was a revival. In actual fact, later on, Ephesus became known as the Christian city. That's how much the gospel had an impact upon Ephesus. And so he was stayed there three years because there was such a huge harvest and God was pouring out a spirit. After Paul left, Timothy became the pastor or main apostolic leader. Then he got martyred later on. And then John became the overseer or the main apostle for all the churches in that area until he died at 100 years old. And so I think when John has this revelation, I think John got a shock because the first message was to the church of Ephesus. That was his church. That's where he was. And so I think you got a bit of a shock because that was the first thing that Jesus talks to him about is the church of Ephesus. So let's just go back there. And I don't know, but... John the Apostle was known as the Apostle of Love. And uh, I don't know, but maybe this message broke his heart because this church had lost their first love. Isn't it ironic? 
Here's John the Apostle, who was known as the Apostle of Love. He has this revelation. Jesus comes to him, the first church, Ephesus. He was, oh, it's my church, that's where I am. And Jesus basically says, you've lost your first love. And he basically calls him back to repentance. But Jesus clarifies, first of all, in verse 1 there, of all the stars, about, he talks about the seven stars in his hand, and that represents seven angels or probably seven apostolic leaders, one for each of the seven churches. And it seems he's entrusting a message to the leadership of each church. And then he said he's walking in the midst of them. In other words, he's walking up and down the aisles of the church. He's here. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands also represent God's presence. And so what he's saying is, I'm holding you dearly, and I'm in your midst. And he's saying, so realign yourself with me. Reset yourself to my perspective. I'm with you. I really am. And I'm aware. I'm involved. My presence is here. And so he's speaking. And so these words are relevant to us today. But the incredible thing about this, he has many remarkable affirmations before he has a rebuke. And it's quite impressive. I think, man, that's a good church. I could have belonged to that church. Because remember, at this stage, they'd been going for about 40 years. This church had been going for 40 years. It was a big church. And so it's not bad. It's a generation. We've been going 20 years, all right? So what we were like in 40 years, all right? But here we go, 40 years later, Jesus comes, and he brings lots of affirmations, and he's encouraging us. I'm, I'm in your midst. I'm walking amidst your midst. I'm the one with the eyes of fire, the sword coming out of my mouth. I am the son of man. And he comes and he brings this word. And he begins to give all his affirmations and he gives a rebuke. And we'll look at that next week. Notice what he says. I said, I know your works and your deeds. I know your hard work or labor. I know your patience and perseverance. You can't tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who are false apostles. You've persevered. You've endured hardship. You've not grown weary. And you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's a pretty good list, all right? You think, wow, that's a pretty cool church. I mean, that's impressive. Now, remember, these things are things that really matter to Jesus. These are the things that are important to Jesus, but that's what he sees. And he said, this is what I see about you. And he affirms him and he says, good on you. But at the end, he says, but I have this against you. Despite all this, there's one thing that's missing. You've lost your first love. You've lost the fire of your first love. Interesting, isn't it? He starts off, he says, I know your works and your deeds. You see, Jesus looks at us today because he walks in the midst of his church and he says, I know your works, I know your deeds. He knows all our actions, all our deeds of loving and serving, all our deeds of praying, discipling, all our deeds of giving. He sees every little bit of thing that we do because he's walking in our midst. And he sees that. And he looks at the evidence too and says, I see that. I see your works and your deeds. And he commends them for that. All their serving, all their giving, all their faithfulness, Everything they did, all their loving, discipling, all the stuff that they were doing, he says, I commend you for that. 
And then he says, I commend you for your hard work and your labor. This work, or this word describes the most difficult and exhausting, wearsome kind of labor. This word here depicts a farm who works in a field during the hottest season, sweat pouring down his face, pushing and plowing, sowing through hard ground. It requires total devotion and total concentration. It would have been hard being a farmer in those days. It was all manual labor, hard labor. It wasn't easy. You had to be constantly turning the soil over, planting, harvesting, sowing, all those things of the farmer. And you're seeing a thing. He says, see your work and your labor over these 40 years. You see, many times we labor hard and we do not see much breakthrough or we don't see a lot of advancement. Sometimes you're reaching out to a little group and a few people get touched here and there, a few backslide, a few ignore you and leave, and a few press in, say, God, we want more. And man, you think that was a lot of hard work. It doesn't seem like much happened. But Jesus sees all that, and he says to them, you're not wasting your time. I see your labor. I see your work. I see your hard work. I see your devotion to me. And so he's, he's affirming that. He said, look, I see that. You've been a hardworking church. You're laboring for me because you love me. And you've been going for 40 years. Now, remember, this was the largest church at that time. And that fact alone demanded a high level of investment. You know, we took about having a big church, but, you know, big church means you've got to work a lot harder. <laughs> it takes a lot of work. The bigger you get, it's a lot of labor, Okay. You think you're busy, but you get into a big church. It's, it's, it's really hard work. Also, many visitors came to this church. We saw that with John and Mary. Many people passing through because it was on the main trade route. And that takes a high level of hospitality and organization just in itself. You imagine that. There are churches like that today. One would be, I think, I'm thinking of Bill Johnson, who has a, a church in Redding, California. They have thousands of visitors every week. They have two or 3,000 students at their Bible college. And sometimes I know they even have more visitors than the actual people in the church every week. That's hard work. You've got to labor hard because there's hospitality. You've got to look after them. It's a huge sacrifice. And there's some churches like that. We've got it easier in that sense because we're smaller. And so we're, it's like a community and a family. But you imagine a huge church. It's just like it's a whole different ball game. The dynamic's different. Ephesus was a big church. And so they've been working hard, laboring. Thousands of visitors coming through. You imagine just putting up visitors, just come to see John and Mary. You'd have to find them food, hospitality, a place to stay, look after them. You know what it's like when you just get two or three people come. You've got to look after them for a week. So imagine that year after year. And so Jesus sees that, and he says, sees your hard labor, I see your work, and he commends them for it. Forty years. We're not talking about a five-minute flash in a pan. We're talking 40 years, four decades of being faithful. And so Jesus was highly commending themselves for their willing attitude and their willingness to do whatever is required for the good of the church and the salvation of the lost. These are some of the qualities that Jesus looks for all of his followers, you and I. He looks. You see, he looks quite differently from what we look at, doesn't he? He's looking at our heart. He looks at our labor and our works. 
Are we being faithful year after year serving him? And then he says, I, he commends them for their patience and their perseverance. That means to remain and abide. It actually describes a resolute decision to remain in one spot, to keep a position to maintain a territory that has been gained. See, one of the main temptations we face is to quit. I don't mean leaving the kingdom or leaving Jesus, but it's believers who stop pressing in for a deeper encounter with the Lord. Many will do it for five to ten years, but there are not many believers who do that for 40 or 50 years. Pressing in, persevering, it's patience, just keep going. Put their, like to the grind and just keep at it. Perseverance and patience. Resolute decision to remain, to keep their position, to stand and to serve God year after year after year. Sometimes they're not seeing a lot, but because they have patience and perseverance. Jesus loves that. That's what he's looking for in people. There are many temptations, many obstacles, many disappointments. And it's easy just to quit and settle down to business as usual. And I've said this before, I know many people have got saved when the same time as me. And many of them, they haven't denied Jesus. They haven't lost their salvation. But the fire's gone. They're not really serving the Lord. They just sort of, oh, well, you know, been there, done that. You know, I still love Jesus, but, you know, I've got my own life now. And, I'm, you know, I've got, I'm retiring and I want to do this and I've got my job and I've got this. I don't say, I'm not saying they haven't, they haven't stopped loving Jesus, but something's gone. That patience, that perseverance. There are many, many people who don't even go to church anymore. They've just opted out because disappointments, obstacles, it's just too hard. They said, ah, oh, I'd give it, flag it, you know. It's okay to do for five or 10 years, but what about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Are you going to be still exactly the same? Are you going to be still standing, still persevering, still full of patience? That's what Jesus is looking for. You see, that's what he's looking for in the Ephesus church. He commends them for it. Or are you just going to cruise? You know, I've served the Lord for 10 or 15 years. I've been committed. I'm tired and it was hard. But it never really happened for me. I'll just take it easy. I'll slow down. What the heck is not really worth it? And give up. Don't quit. That's what Jesus was looking at. Don't quit. You're in it for the long haul. In for the long haul. And here the word means a person under a heavy load but refuses to stray from his or her position. Because he's committed to the task year in and year out. It's an inward resolve that says, I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to move. Remember the church that ever faced persecution, pagan culture, in their face every day, but they refused to back down. Many were martyred in the great stadium that would have dominated the city. Patience and perseverance was known as the queen of all virtues back in those days. It's the queen of all virtues. They believed if you possess these virtues, they could survive and overcome anything that came against them. Wow. It was no longer if they would overcome their battles, but only when they would overcome. Wow, what qualities that Jesus loves. That's a good church, right? They're the qualities that Jesus looks at. That's what he commends them for. Awesome, eh? It's like, wow, a bit of backbone. I tell you something, the Christian life is, no, <laughs> is not the place for snowflakes and wimps. <laughs> Honest. It's not easy. 
It's not easy, especially in our culture. You can see it all the time, you know. People start off 10 or 15 years, oh, they've disappeared. Where have they gone? Oh, it's too hard. Oh, I can't be bothered. Oh, I've been there, done that. Oh, look, I've got other things to do in my life. Careful, because Jesus is watching. He walks amongst the church, and he's looking for people that are going to persevere and have patience. In for the long haul. You know, that's one thing I found about Indonesians. When you go to Indonesia, that's a quality they have, man. If you're called to the ministry, you're in the ministry for life. And you just keep going through patience and perseverance, and they go for a hard time. But they never give up. They never stop. You don't see people quitting the pastorate or quitting ministry in Indonesia very often because they take it seriously. They say, I'm in this. It's what God's called me to do it. I'm doing it for the rest of my life. Here, it's easy to start. I said, oh, we won't. You know? Especially if you have a, such a snowflake culture. Okay? It's true. It's, it comes out of the States, but it's true. Snowflakes. You know, they get offended about everything. Oh, all the rest of it. Listen, it's not easy. You're going to face all sorts of difficulties, discouragement. There's all sorts of things that will try and trip you up. But the key is to stick at it. I'm here till the lights go out. Woo! <laughs> it's, what me, it's, what I, it's me anyway. He loves those qualities. Patience is staying power. Some modern commenter says, the hang in there power. Sometimes it's just a matter of hanging in there. When you don't feel his presence, nothing's happening, it's like, oh, this is boring. It's like, oh, get over yourself, right? Follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus. Make up your mind. You've got to decide. That's the thing. Not just for five years. We're going to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Are you still going to be here? Or are you going to be gone? Because Jesus, that's what Jesus is looking for. It conveys the idea of being steadfast, consistent, unwavering, and flinching. No place for snowflakes. And then it says there, he commends them, he says, because you cannot tolerate wicked men. That's interesting, isn't it? Means they refuse to carry, endorse, bear responsibility, lift up, or publicize any person to be evil. Whoa! In other words, if you weren't prepared to repent and be part of the community, be part of the community, they refuse to carry you or endorse you or bear responsibility for your life. They couldn't afford to. You imagine being living in that culture. They're going to be you could be martyred thrown into with the lions. You've got pagan culture all around you. you just, you're at the whims of who was the emperor at the time could decide if you're going to live or die. And that word evil is used 50 times in the New Testament and describes that as bad, destructive, evil, foul, harmful, hurtful, injurious, and vile. That's quite a list. And so they didn't tolerate any wicked people in their midst. Basically, they were called to repentance. They didn't repent. You don't belong here. Go and repent or sort it out. See, Ephesus was a testing ground for new ideas and new thinkers. Anything went. They'd come and debate and they'd argue about all these new ideas. And so many so-called believers turned up and tried to, or if you like, tried out their new doctrines and revelations. And if you can make it in Ephesus, and the churches receive you, or you receive the endorsement from the church, and the doors are open to all of Asian Minor. 
And so in Ephesus was a place where there were all these false teachers coming in, all these people that are trying to, all these different ideas. And so they, he said they did not tolerate any wicked person. And it says there, there, there were, as a result, there were many false prophets and apostles were constantly descending on the city. And Jesus commends them for refusing to tolerate or endure them. It says there they tested them, those who claimed to be apostles and were not. The word to describe tested means the purifying fire that metal goes through. Well, these guys were intense because they would make it known who was false. The word to test depicts a calculated, premeditated test. We don't know what that test was of investigation that was deliberately designed to expose falsehood. And so they were scrutinized. Anyone who came said, I'm an apostle, they basically, right, and they tested them somehow. They tested them to the max to find out what they actually believed, who they were, and so on and so on. And instead, it was like going through fire. The tester was so thoroughly, they felt as though going through fire. And so they were very tough. And we might think, oh, they were a bit legalistic. I don't think so, because they knew that they had to keep the purity of the doctrine. They understood the importance of making sure there was no false, or false apostles, because there were so many false apostles, so many want-to-be apostles going around saying, well, I'm an apostle. He said, really? I mean, we've had that in the past. We've had people come and say, I'm an apostle. And Freddie said, no, you're not. Not in this place, you're not. <laughs> I mean, you've just got to be careful. And today, what's happening with with the, with the media, you got internet, all the Facebook, all that stuff. You have so many false teachers and false apostles. You can go and watch. Be careful what you listen to, because it's given a platform to everyone to say everything, and there's a lot of stuff that's just a lot of rubbish. So be careful what you listen to, what you see on computer or the internet. There are many false apostles in the body of Christ today. They claim to be apostles, but they are not. They're self-appointed, they're false, and they're liars. I guess and it's a whole other study, but we need to study the Word of God to carefully find out what a true apostle is according to the true biblical meaning. But that's a whole other subject. What, is it, what does an apostle look like? What does it mean to be an apostle? What is, he, what, uh, what is his character like? What is, how does he function? What do they do? Because there are many false apostles that are roaming around. And then he said, goes on, he says, I commend you for your patience and perseverance. It's interesting because Jesus is repeating what he already said. Here it means you have been patient in the past and have remained constantly patient in the present. He commends them highly in this era, referring to the continual persecution that assailed them and the lying false pretenders masquerading as apostles. So you imagine the environment. Whoops, this has been quite hard. That's good for the Bible, isn't it? You see, they did all this for Jesus' namesake, it says there, on the account of his name. In other words, they endured all the suffering for the right reasons, for the right motivation. They wanted to honor Jesus. They wanted to glorify Jesus. And they had not fainted or grown weary. 
They never gave into exhaustion or weariness. Their spirits remained strong and they refused to relax their work ethic as they served the Lord. We're talking about 40 years. You say, sometimes we get weary, don't we? You see, they didn't grow weary. They didn't grow tired. They just doubled down. They persevered. All the opposition, all the persecution, they just kept going, kept going, and kept going. And then you come down to verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. And this is the highest recommendation. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's strong. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's strong words. He hates the practice of the Nicolaitans. What is the practice of the Nicolaitans? Nicolaitans literally means the one who conquers and subdues people. These Nicolaitans were or descended from Nicholas, who was one of the seven deacons ordained in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. So he's one of the deacons they picked. And he turned into like a, uh, not a, it was a cult, but it was getting that way, called the Nicolaitans. And according to the writings of the early church, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise. Basically what he said was that total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. In other words, there was compromise. Remember, ancient Rome was full of idol worship, which was full of occult, demonic activity. Remember, I talked about Corinthians. Remember the same problem? Remember, we talked about Corinthians last year. He talked about the communion. He had never had a positive word to say about communion. Why? Because there was a mixture of the communion was being mixed with a pagan, pagan religion. Okay, they're offering sacrifices, offering meat idolatry, and so they were mixing with them, and so there was a mixture, and Paul says, how can you mix the two? And so it cost a lot, you see, because remember, the whole city was into pagan worship, and so when you became a Christian, you had to break away from a lot of stuff, and it cost you dearly, and because you, would, you could have lost your job, you would have been facing persecution, you would have been, you would have been isolated, you would have been set aside, you would have been, became like a leper. And so what happened with the Nicolaitans? They said, it doesn't matter. You can practice those things and put those things together. The Nicolaitans taught it was okay to have a foot in both worlds. And it led to a Christianity which was powerless and weak and without conviction. It was a very liberal viewpoint. Today we call it progressive Christianity. And we see that in the Western church today. This is relevant for today that there's so much compromise in the Western church of progressive Christianity. And so it's embracing stuff that's not biblical. One of those things is homosexuality. We have churches now that think there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. It's normal. And you have, you know, the, the, the uh, transgender thing. There's nothing wrong with that. All this nonsense going on. You see, that is the teaching of Nicolaitans. It's compromise. Because they don't want to stand against the world, but it's going to cost them too much. And so you bow down to the world and you mix the two together. It was okay to be involved in fleshly activity without any risk or any restraint. 
It was all under the name of the grace of God. It was a false gospel of grace. In other words, it became a license to sin. I'm under grace. I can do what I like, which caused people to indulge in sin, especially immorality. The big thing about this was immorality because all those pagan cults, Yomi was due with sexual immorality. A lot of them had temple prostitutes. A lot of the gods were fertility gods. And so you'd go and you'd, it would be like sexual immorality. It would be sexual orgies to do with the worship of these idols. And so the whole thing was sexual immorality. And so here were the church, the Nicolaitans, saying, it's okay, you can mix those two together. And that's what's happening. And he says, they hated that. And Jesus commends them highly. He says, because I hate that as well. Compromise. You can't compromise. And it's going to cost you something to be a Christian in these days ahead. The pressure's going to continue. It's not going to go away. They're going to put, there's going to be constant pressure to compromise, 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 compromise. And it's going to come against you and against you until you stand. And you see, that's going to cost you something dearly because then you're going to be isolated. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be all called all sorts of names. It's already happening. You can see it in the West. This teaching is for today. The teaching of the Nicolaitans. Cheap grace. All I'm under grace, you can do what you like. Grace is God's empowering presence to change your life. It's in the empowering presence to be different. It's not to give in to that stuff. And what, and, and what really happened was it actually conquered the people. And we can see that in the West today, that there's so much compromise in the church that many times you can't even tell the difference between the church and the world. They look on the church and say, well, you're no different from us. Jesus hates it. And, the Nick, and he applauds them. He commends the church of Ephesus because Ace also hated it. Just go to Jude chapter 4. Jude, just back, one book back. Look at verse 4. Verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I thought I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Here it is, same thing. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, probably talking about the Nicolaitans, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for morality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Exactly what's happened, you see. People sneak in. And they preach a compromise. And immorality becomes, a, um, basically, grace becomes a license for immorality. Careful. Don't fall for that. There is a movement in the Western church called the Progressive Church, which teaches that. At basically pushing an agenda that says homosexuality is okay, transgenderism is okay, compromising the Word of God, so it's okay, and they're embracing and they're merging those two things. It's dangerous. But to see who's going to stand up against it when it comes. You're just going to bow down to it. You see, this church was pretty good because they, they hated that. They hated that teaching, and they refused to bow down to it. So they would have said, no, you become a Christian, you've got to get rid of all your pagan idols, you can't go to the pagan temples, you can't bow down to that, you can't worship that thing if you're going to be a Christian. You can't mix the two. That's what Paul was saying to the, the Corinthians. He said, how can you have demons and the Lord's Supper together? Because they were mixing the two. 
And he was saying, no, no, be a Christian, fine, but don't try and mix that with pagan religions. Don't try and mix that with compromise. And you're going to face that more and more in these days. And so you can see how relevant it is for today because the church is full of compromise where we bow down to the things that we're not supposed to bow down to. And it doesn't mean going around hating people. I'm not talking about that at all, attacking people. It's just a matter of standing in God's grace and his love. I don't believe that, sorry, if you want to, but that's not happening here. We don't believe that. We don't stand for that. And, when, and if you want to be part of this fellowship, fine. But that's not acceptable behavior. And so you can't do that. Well, that's the reality. That's what they did here. Jesus commends them. He says, you hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's what I hate. And if Jesus hates it, that's a big thing, isn't it? It's like, wow. We better make sure we're on the, on the Lord's side, okay? And so he loves us too much to leave us in that place. And he's going to deal with the church. He's going to deal with the Western church. The fire will come and you'll begin to cut that out with like a two-edged sword in his mouth because he has to, because he's preparing a bride. And it means that a lot of the church will be separated. A lot of the churches, you know, it talks about a great falling away in, in a lot of the scriptures. And, and there's no question that in my mind, in the Western world, we're in that season of a great falling away. There's going to be a separation between those that are really on fire for Jesus, that those who really love him and those who are going to compromise the word of God. And it's going to separate the two. And there will be a falling away. And so you have to be aware of that. I know there's going to be God's outpouring of a spurt. There'll be revivals. But also you'll have a great falling away. And that's already happening. has been for a while. And so be very careful. Don't compromise the word of God. Know what the word of God and when, when the time comes, know how to stand in love, but refuse to bow to that thing. Don't allow the teaching of the Nicolaitans come in. Don't compromise. You see, much of the church is powerless and weak. But Jesus is walking in the midst with eyes of fire and a two-edged sword to purge those things from his bride. You know, because he loves his bride. He died for his bride. The church is his idea, not our idea. And you might not feel it, but Jesus is standing in the midst with eyes of fire, with a two-edged sword in his mouth. And he's going through and he's looking for those who are going to be like the church in Ephesus, who will hate the things that he hates, that will stand, that will be patient, that will persevere. They're not going to give in. They're not going to be snowflakes. They're going to stand and they're going to keep going year after year, decade after decade. Because in this thing we're going to see next week after all that, he had this thing against them. Lost their first love. Wow. 40 years. Born in revival. Imagine being born in a revival. Imagine getting saved in that revival 40 years earlier. One generation and suddenly they were doing all the right things. He commends them for it, but they'd lost their first love. The spark had gone. The fire disappeared. Why? You know, it's, it, takes, it takes something to keep going over the long haul. See, Jesus not interested in five years or ten years. He's looking at our overall life. He said, will you stay on fire right to the very end? And we're going to look at the fact that how come we don't stay on fire? How come it's hard to stay on fire with his love? And so we're going to look at that next week because he basically tells them to repent. 
And they were probably the biggest church at that time. One generation, well, there's a lot to commend them about. But he says, hey, you have one thing, though. Where's the first love? Where's that passion? Where's that fire from the very beginning? Where's it gone? And he calls them back to repentance. And the Western church needs to be called back to repentance. We need to repent sometimes because of our lack of that fire of his love. You can't make it up. I mean, we've heard this before, and I've said before, you know, you can't go and make yourself on fire. It's not like, it's just not a condemnation thing. You're saying, well, how do you get on fire? You can't pump yourself up. I'm going to be on fire. I'm going to be on fire. Ah! Whatever. It doesn't work that way, okay? It's, it's something that God does, but it's being aware of and saying, God, you're going to have to do something in my heart. God, it's, I think sometimes we need to pray, say, God, do something in my heart. If you look at the other one of the other churches, he said, those he loves, he rebukes. We'll look at that one of the other churches. This thing is, those he loves, he rebukes. Here's a question. When's the last time you had the Lord rebuke you? That's a good question. It says, those he loves, he rebukes. And to be honest, sometimes we need a rebuke. When he rebukes you, you'll know all about it. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants our hearts. He wants all of us. And so you can't work it up. It's a God, a thing that God does. But it's like being aware of that and say, God, I mean, I'm like that. I say, God, don't let me lose the fire. God, it's like, unless you do something, touch my heart. Because I know my heart. If I'm left to myself, my heart will just grow cold. All of us are the same. There's this natural tendency just to grow cold. And you can remain faithful and you can do all the right things, but you look back and say, well, I'm not really on fire as I used to be. I, it's not like I've denied Jesus, but it's like something's missing. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, God, you're going to have to, it's God's got to touch us. That's why we need fresh encounters with his love. That's why we need to say, God, I need, I, oh man, I love that scripture and the Passion Translation. It's one that David had when I, before, just before he passed away, you know, about each and every sunrise. I lay my requests before the Lord. I lay the pieces of my life upon the altar, and I wait for the fire to fall afresh. I love that psalm. So, Lord, let the fire fall afresh in my heart, because if I don't, I know that that, that love will die, because that's a natural tendency. And so I want to encourage you this morning, not condemn you, and next week we'll look at the whole thing about your first love. Because, again, there's so much, there's just too much stuff on this, you know. It's like, oh, okay. But we'll look at that whole thing. How do we get on fire again? Because, as I said, it's not about, it's not even about preaching a message like this. It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of His grace. But it's that awareness and say, God, I, ne- I, need, I need you to rebuke me. Please rebuke me if I'm losing my love. That's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Remember praying some dangerous prayers is good for you? <laughs> we don't want to do that, but hey, some of you need to, we need to pray some dangerous prayers. Say, God, if, I, if my love's growing cold, please rebuke me, because if you don't, I'll lose that. You understand what I'm saying? Let's stand, shall we? I hope that's a good encouragement this morning. It's to start us off. So next week we'll look at that whole thing about first love. It was an awesome church when you think about it. It did pretty well. I mean, a lot of churches are not 
doing as well as they did. Even in the midst of persecution. Imagine being persecuted like that. But I think the thing that spoke to me is that I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing to go and talk to John and Mary? <laughs> just think, just think, just let your mind go, what would you ask them if you, if you imagine if John and Mary knew that there was someone here like John and Mary that, wow, the mother of Jesus and John who was with Jesus and they were still alive and they just lived down the road. Wouldn't you go and want to visit them? Wow. And what would you ask them? It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? I'd love to be a fly on the wall there and just see what sort of questions they asked them. Just think about that. Imagine meeting the mother of Jesus. Like, what was he like as a boy? Was he a good boy? <laughs> what was he like? What did he talk like? What did he look like? I was saying, what did he look like? I don't know. I don't know. Just let, you, let it go wild. It would have been fascinating, wouldn't it? What was it like, Jesus, when you're on the mount? What was it like, John, on the Mount of Transfiguration? What was that like? Hey? What was it like after the resurrection when he appeared to you? What was it really like? Like being there. It must have been like, woo. And it must have been incredible. No wonder thousands went to see them. Okay, I've got to pray, I guess, before I get carried away. Thank you, Father. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. I hope it speaks to hearts because, Lord, it's just as relevant for today, Lord. Lord, you love your church. And Lord, one thing I know, Lord God, you love your church too much to leave it where it is at. You love us too much to leave us where we're at. Because, Father, you're coming back for a pure and a holy bride. And, Lord, we want to open our hearts. We don't want to be stubborn. Lord, stir our hearts. We know we can't work up that love. We know that it comes. I ask, Lord God, that you would come, and even to come to Southside, and, Lord, that you would bring a fresh revelation of your love, a fresh touch of your love. Lord, that you would come with your fire of your love again. Because I know, Lord God, it's so easy just to lose that first love. We can do all the right things for the right reasons, but, Lord, sometimes our heart's just not where it's meant to be. And, Lord, I pray you'd bring a conviction, you would bring a change, you would come and you'd begin to pour out a fresh touch of your love. Lord, it's, it's your love. Lord, if, let the fire fall fresh upon our hearts. Lord, I know that, Lord God. Father, the West, you want to wake up the West. You haven't finished with the church in the West. A lot of people think that the church is finished in the West, but it's not because it's your church. And you will have a church that will love you. You will have a church at the end of the age that will be on fire for you. You'll have a church at the end of the age that is passionate for you. You'll have a church that is consumed with love for you. You'll have a church at the end of the age that won't, won't compromise. Lord, it'll be full of patience and perseverance. Lord God, it'll be on fire. And Lord, because that's your church, because you died for your church, you will have a people, Lord God, that will be on fire to the end of the V age. Lord, you're not coming for a weak church an old bride, you come back for a bride that's on fire. Lord, I pray that you would, we would be part of that company, Lord God. Father, I thank you for young people here especially. Lord, that you would come with fire. Lord, I don't care what they do today or the next day, but Lord, where will they be in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years? Will they be on fire 
Oh, Lord, they've just gone of the way of the world. Lord God, have mercy upon us, Lord, that you would come with fresh fire of your love. Lord, that would last all their life. Lord, that it would be like a, a commitment, say, God, I'm here for the rest of my life. And Lord, they would run because I know there's going to be, there will be things that come against them, discouragement, despondency, things, Lord God, that will trip them up. There will be discouragement, disappointments. All those things will come. But Lord, that they would be on fire right to the end. Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Lord, just come this morning, Lord. Lord, we recognize we need more of you. We need more of your presence, more of your fire. We need more of your love. Lord, thank you for even the sense in the coronavirus. Lord God, we know it's not good, but Lord, it's, you're using it, Lord God, to humble your church. I thank you for even that prophetic word I heard last, Lord, for this time, this last year, about this, this coming year, Lord, of 2020, God was going to humble the church. And I think that's a true word. Lord, you're humbling your church because you love your church. You're humbling your church because you want your church to reset the button. Lord, part of the reset, Lord God, is fresh fire, is a fresh love for you. That's part of the reset. Lord, we need to be reset all the time. Reset us, Lord God, with fresh fire from heaven. Thank you, Lord. And I, look, I want to, you know, if you want prayer, I'm willing to, willing to pray for you. Maybe what I've said this morning really spoke to you. Maybe you know your heart's not where it's meant to be. I don't know. And I don't want to force anybody because it's not that. But if you know that God's touching your heart and say, God, that's me. My, my love is gone. I need fresh fire in my heart. I'd love to pray for you. So if that's you, is there any words of knowledge?